Just a word of warning before we start. This podcast contains the sound of gunfire, as well as descriptions of violent death that some listeners may find disturbing. And if you haven't heard episode one, you'll probably want to go back and start there. Hey guys, you've got to have your eyes and ears on right now. We can't go another step without them. It's a Saturday morning in February 2018. The cast of Cry Havoc Theater Company are wearing safety gear at an indoor gun range. The parents stay to the back of the yellow line. Young adults come up on the yellow line, okay? For most of the actors, this is their first time encountering a gun, let alone firing one. Are you left-handed or right-handed? They've come here to Eagle Gun Range outside of Dallas to do research for their upcoming play about guns and the controversy surrounding them. Get it up where you see it? Yes. Okay. You want to put that dot right at the bottom there, okay? Cry Havoc's an award-winning high school theater company that creates original plays about difficult issues like global warming or immigration. Now it's gun rights, and this morning their research starts off with a firearms safety drill. Now I'm going to step back a little bit. Now go ahead and pull that trigger gently. No big deal, was it? One by one, each teenager is guided to a lane in the gun range where a fully automatic AR-15 rests on a table. It's securely tethered there. It's not going anywhere. Okay, do we have anybody that wants to volunteer to at least pick it up and handle it? Just to have some knowledge about it. We're not going to use it. Anybody volunteer at all? Thank you. Come on, head. David Prince is 70. He's an NRA member, and he was eager for the students to visit. He happily let Cry Havoc use his gun range for free, even gave them free ammo. Prince opened his first range seven years ago. He has two. He likes to say they're family-friendly. Okay, this is an AR-15, okay? It's not an assault rifle 15. It's Armalite 15. Armalite is the manufacturer. 15 is the model, okay? Whether you're for guns, against guns, or somewhere in between, that's not the issue here, now. For most of these high schoolers, Eagle Gun Range is just a very different world. Outside, it looks ordinary enough. It could be an auto parts store. Inside, all the windows have security bars. There are closed-circuit cameras everywhere. And there's an entire storefront showcasing Glocks, Berettas, shotguns, handguns, hunting rifles. But the one thing the students have been chatting about is firing that fully automatic AR-15. Mixed with that anticipation, there's some unease as well. Just three days before this visit to Eagle Gun Range, the deadliest mass shooting in history at an American school happened in Parkland, Florida. Good day, everyone. I'm Kristen Dahlgren in New York, and we are coming on the air at this hour with news of a school shooting in South Florida. The weapon the shooter used? A semi-automatic Smith & Wesson variation of the AR-15. The shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida is one of more than a dozen recent mass shootings where a shooter used an AR-15-style rifle. But then, the AR-15 is the most popular rifle in America. In the Parkland shooting, three staff members and 14 students were murdered. High school students, just like the Cry Havoc actors. And that mass shooting sparked a national outcry, particularly among young people. Here's Emma Gonzalez, one of the survivors of the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. They say guns are just tools like knives and are as dangerous as cars. We call BS! 
They say that no laws could have been able to prevent the hundreds of senseless tragedies that have occurred. We call BS that us kids don't know what we're talking about, that we're too young to understand how the government works. We call BS. Emma Gonzalez is delivering that speech on the same morning the Cry Havoc actors are visiting Eagle Gun Range. On the same day, the actors are taking turns firing an AR-15 on full auto. Step forward, lean against that table. There you go. You okay? Go ahead and pull the trigger and let go whenever it's time, all right? I'm Hadi Mawagdi, reporting fellow for Guns in America. I'm Jerome Weeks, arts reporter for KERA in North Texas. And this is Gunplay. I was excited when I first went in there, and I kind of felt bad about being excited to, like, shoot a death machine. But um, after I went in there, it was, it was kind of fun. Jemiah Parker is a 16-year-old student actor at Booker T. Washington Arts Magnet High School in Dallas. Jemiah is pretty new to acting but she hopes to write a play someday. She's also one of the few actors who comes from a household with guns. Her father hunts, he keeps the rifle under his bed, and he's got a handgun for home protection. As much as I would love to say just get rid of all guns, like they're horrible, horrible death machines, I I can't necessarily say that because I come from a home where we have a gun in the house, and so it's just, you don't know what to do. Jemiah's clearly conflicted about guns and Second Amendment rights. Jemiah also said, and other students certainly agreed, firing live ammunition this morning has been a real rush. Actor Kara Lawson spent a short while on the gun range. Well, I was feeling really groggy this morning. I'm certainly awake now. I don't know. There's like an adrenaline rush to it. Like I just feel a little like jolted. These weapons pack a lot of power. And that power can be thrilling. You can feel the jolt in your hands, in your arms. Your power extends clear across the room. But what happens when that power hits something or someone? The actors talked with Dr. Brian Williams. He's a former military medic and a trauma surgeon who worked on a mass shooting in Dallas. Williams told the students a high-velocity weapon like an AR-15 causes much more carnage than your typical 9mm pistol. He says the AR-15's bullet is like a shockwave ripping through your body. They'll both do damage, but the AR-15 does a lot more damage. If it hits bones, you have bones that are just polarized. The Parkland shooter's AR-15 was only semi-automatic, yet he still fired more than 100 rounds in six minutes. That's one round every three and a half seconds. At their own schools, the Cryhavik students have already been practicing hiding under their desks. Now they just handled both a semi and fully automatic AR-15. Being a high school student in America means that we have to take these precautions. That's Mary Bandy. Jemiah may just be getting started studying theater, but Mary is a bit of a drama nerd. The 17-year-old junior acts in two different troops, and she's even won a Young Playwrights Award. It's not just unsafe in Florida. It's not just unsafe in these individual areas. These aren't isolated incidents. It's everywhere. And sort of just, I don't know, hearing the sound of that gunshot, there was this, like, terrifying thought in my brain that, like, 
any day, any time, I could hear that in my school. I could hear that in my community. I've surely heard it at my own home. Before questions, can I tell you how proud I am of you guys for doing this? Y'all did a really good job. I'm just, I'm really proud of you. After their time on the range, David Prince happily answers questions. And what are your thoughts about open carry versus concealed carry? You've done your homework. It's not fair. Uh, whatever we can do to keep ourselves safe. My, I want you safe. If that means you want to carry it openly, fine. To me personally, I don't think it's a good idea. At the same time, it's a trade-off. If you have it concealed, it takes longer to get there to protect yourself, okay? It's, it's a balance. The cask asked David Prince about his first time shooting. What does he think about a computerized database? Prince sees no reason a legal gun owner should have his or her weapon tracked in such a database. We've not done anything wrong. Go after the bad guys. The bad guys have the guns. Go after them. Do what it takes to take their guns away. Registering my gun is not going to stop that gun violence. They're going to get guns, and you're going to leave me defenseless. But if a gun is stolen, the students ask, wouldn't a database help police know it's out there? I'm going to tell you what the theory is. If you have a national database and a totalitarian government steps up and wants to disarm the citizens, You've just given them a roadmap on how to disarm the citizens, okay? Prince's suspicion about how our government might completely disarm millions of responsible gun owners in America has triggered something in the cast members. Jemiah Parker insists, just because they know you have guns doesn't mean you don't still have the right to own them. But Prince argues any government with that information is a step towards totalitarianism. How does that prevent a bad guy from having a gun and hurting somebody with it. How, how have you stopped violent crime by having guns on a database? If we could decrease violent crime, then we should take a chance with that, right? Yes, you should. Have more police officers and you can at least reduce violent crimes immediately. At this point, what started as a harmless enough Q&A about gun ownership has shifted. Prince's aversion to apparently any change to gun ownership as he knows it seems to have put off most of the young performers. We're on the ride back to Dallas from the gun range. Here in the car, Jemiah starts thinking out loud to the other Cry Havoc actors. She's working out what David Prince said, and she's finding flaws in his arguments against background checks or a national registry. When it comes to public safety, she argues even partial solutions are worth trying. If we're talking about a cancer patient and they're saying that there's a chance that if you take this certain medication or if you get radiation, it'll decrease some of the cancer, are you not going to take the medication because it won't get rid of all of the cancer? That doesn't make sense to me. So what I learned is that if we honestly really just wanted to make it stop, we could, but People have, including myself, we have too many emotions wrapped up in how to do it. And even though people are dying, I don't think it's, it doesn't seem to be enough for people to change their minds. 
So that's it. I will tell you, it's been very, very difficult to get gun owners to talk to us. Pry Havoc director Mara Richards-Bim is speaking to the cast and their parents in a classroom at a local community college. She tells them about her attempts to connect with the NRA for interviews and how she's gotten no response. I will just say, I've said it, you know, at the last show, I'm a gun owner. I have guns in my home. My husband is a hunter. You know, there are, there's a range of people who own guns in this country. Trying to explore that range of gun owners is one reason why Cry Havoc's actors went to meet David Prince. It's also why today Mara Richards-Bim has brought a friend into the classroom who's thinking about guns isn't so in line with the NRAs. Aaron is a single white male in his 30s. Um, so I've given them a little bit of background, the kids a little bit of background. I said that, you know, you and I have been friends um, and that I asked you to come in here and have the conversation because on Facebook, whenever guns come up, I, I see you post things that I think are really thoughtful measured, well thought out, and that sort of thing. He doesn't want his full name used. He's a software consultant. He has clients and would-be clients. And as he says, on the topic of gun rights... Like every time somebody argues about it, they want to... The first thing everybody wants to do is assign blame. Uh, And I don't really want that to be anywhere in the top few Google results for my name. (laughs) (laughs) The fact is, Aaron was an NRA member, but he quit partly because of the rhetoric. I think that their line is a little tired. They seem to be creating a lot of hysteria, but they don't seem to be actually doing anything useful. He's collected several guns, but they're not a big political or personal statement. Both his parents were firearms instructors. The lesson growing up when I was a kid when it comes to handling guns is don't. Uh, (laughs) um, I think growing up, getting early exposure to it, took the mystique out of it, so there wasn't any time. For his own protection, Aaron does carry what's known as a micro-carry gun because of its easy-to-hide size. But he's never fired it in self-defense. That's true for the vast majority of gun owners, even though, originally, they may have bought their gun for self-protection. That's a fallback plan, if nothing else. I'd say the uh, best way to win a gunfight is don't be in one. The actors were impressed with how reasonable Aaron is. They like the way he considers complicating factors. Uh, so it comes down to how you uh, create and enforce those laws. Does, is, is the law written in a way where somebody sells his hunting rifle to a friend and that makes him criminally liable? Then, you know, you could, that's, a, that's a problem. But towards the end, Fabian Rodriguez, whose father was killed with a gun, Fabian asked Aaron this. What do you think both parties could do to fix the problem of gun laws or gun violence? I don't know. Um. We're in a minivan, driving through the New England snow. This is where the teenagers from Texas are spending their spring break. In the wake of the Stoneman Douglas school shooting, the actors are exploring the aftermath of a different mass shooting. We're meeting with survivors 
of the 2012 murders at Sandy Hook Elementary in Connecticut. Oh, look, there's the sign. Sheldrick Pearl is a quiet-natured kid who speaks deliberately. The Skyline High School senior has lost classmates to gun violence, and he's actually kind of resigned to it now. But Sheldrick also works as an intern at a Dallas elementary school, and that's gotten him thinking about his own safety now. Sometimes I think, like, what if it happens while I'm there? Because I think I'm more, like... I'm at a double risk since I go to high school and I work at an elementary school. So I think about it a lot sometimes now. This might be the the rawest of experiences you're going to hear, you know? Yeah. Um, is that something that, how do you feel about that? I mean, it's nice to actually, like, be in the town that it happened, like, to be in the atmosphere and to speak to the parents because usually they're the ones who's faced with the problems of gun violence. And just, like, ask him, like, how does his life go on without his son? I think about the gruesome details about it all the time. I think about what he experienced in that classroom. I have to hope that it was, that they were little kids and they didn't really quite understand what was happening and that it was fast and painless. Um, But I don't really know that. That's Mark Barden. His six-year-old son, Daniel, was one of the 26 people murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut. I, I like to tell stories about how compassionate Daniel was. Daniel used to hold doors for strangers. When he found bugs inside the house, he'd scoop them up and release them safely outside. And all of his teachers would tell us that he was very concerned about his, his peers and that if anybody was sitting alone, he wanted to sit with them and make sure they were okay. So which prompted people to call him an old soul and the caretaker of all living things. He was, his dad says, a very special, unique little boy. Later that evening, Trinity Gordon and Mary Bandy can't help but talk about Daniel. Trinity speaks first. You definitely felt him in the room. Like, I mean, when Mark pulled the picture out, like, in the first five seconds, I was like, like, he was there. You, you knew who, you knew who Daniel was. Something that stuck out to me was that when uh, Mark started talking about, like, the shooter himself, he was, like, he was, like, one of those people that Daniel would try to reach out to. And I was just, like... And now I just think about, like, what that conversation would be like. Just are you okay? Yeah. Like, this little child that's, like, full of life, and they're not? Mark Barden is only one of three people the group interviews about Sandy Hook. He and Nicole Hockley tell the teens about losing their sons. Abby Clements, a former teacher at Sandy Hook, tells them about the day when the shooter walked into the elementary school. He was armed with a Glock handgun and Remington's Bushmaster version of the AR-15. And then I heard the crash, what sounded like a crash. And it sounded like um, folding chairs falling, like a whole bunch of like that. So I stopped, I was like by the door, but I heard the custodian say something like shooter in the building, except not like that. It's like the scariest sound. It's like shooter in the building, like that. Abby Clements tells the cast she ran into her second grade classroom. 
She hid children under coats hanging on the wall. But she understood that she couldn't protect them from everything. The classroom loudspeaker was on, broadcasting what was happening down the hall. So it was 154 shots in five minutes. So from the time the chairs, it's continual. And this is all in five minutes. It's fast. But I knew, like, I was looking up at that, knowing that this is, like, damaging them. It was like I had this sixth sense that, like, this was really bad and this could, like, mess them up. But I couldn't pull it down because that was going to tell me what to do. Because of the loudspeaker, Clements' students heard 20 of their classmates get shot to death, all of them six or seven years old. Clements says in that moment, she froze. But then I need to lock the door because the door locks on the outside. And there was also some screaming out in the hallway. And so I didn't know what to do, and I told the kids that. I was like, I don't know what to do. i got to lock the door if I'm scared. And they're like, you can do it. Lock the door. You have to lock the door. And I was crying at that point. And so I freaking opened the door, locked the damn thing, closed it, came back over here. And, um, and then we just listened to all those shots. All this was still only five minutes. That day, less than two weeks before Christmas, that day was different for Nicole Hockley. Like many parents, when she heard her son Dylan's school was on lockdown, she raced there. But she was diverted to a firehouse down the street where authorities were trying to sort kids into different rooms. That was chaos. And uh, if if you imagine parents everywhere, like pressed against each other, trying to move through the crowds, trying desperately to look over each other's shoulders to find, where's my kid? No one could tell her where six-year-old Dylan was. And this woman, who I still can't even remember who she is, um, but I I know her face in every detail, she turned to me and she said, which class are you looking for? And I said, I'm looking for Ms. Soto's class. And she said, I heard she'd been shot. And that was my first indication that something was really not right. All around both of them, parents were finding their children. But there was this small crowd of fearful mothers and fathers waiting. I kept looking and still couldn't find Dee, and um, I remember seeing one of the girls who was Dylan's reading partner, and she was just was just staring at me with this blank face. And Governor Malloy and the senators came in, and he stood up there, and people were demanding, you know, what's going on? Why are we here? Where are our kids? And then Governor Malloy finally said, these people need to know. And he said, uh, I need to tell you, if, if you're here, then your loved one's not coming back. And the room just erupted, absolutely erupted. The screams, the cries. This one man fell on the floor in front of, in front of me and started beating himself. It was just a horrific, horrific sight. And I, and, and I just wanted to leave. And, and I know that he was killed instantly. He was shot five times in the body and once in the head. You think of a 60-pound kid, that's a lot of damage. His face was perfect for his funeral, though. When I saw him in his casket, it was just the back of his head that was gone. After every interview, the students debrief, 
to help them take in what they've heard and to help them work through their own emotions. What they say on stage will be taken from what these people have personally told them. So these debriefs are part therapy, part theater workshop. Trinity Gordon and Angie Hogue. You could definitely tell when she told us things that she's never really told to other people, and then you can tell which things she's told, you know, within having to tell her story for so long. But you could see some of the things that she gave, especially for us, which was Right, well, nice. the things she talked about, about the, uh, the actual injuries... Uh, that his body suffered, like, it looked like she had said that many, many times before, because she didn't, it didn't really, I feel like she's detached herself from it, yeah. That's got to be real tough to know exactly, I mean, as a parent, you want to know, but it's got to have a heavy strain on some, on someone to know exactly where, and she said, like, half his head was, was crazy. So here we are in Newtown. By now, all the kids who died in the shooting, they would be teenagers. The small town has changed as well. They completely rebuilt Sandy Hook Elementary. Mass school shootings, like Newtown's, are actually quite rare when it comes to the annual total of gun deaths in America. But the murders of defenseless children are shocking. In fact, Nicole Hockley and Mark Barden are now fighting to stop more school shootings. They're co-founders of a nonprofit called Sandy Hook Promise. It trains students, parents, and teachers to recognize the warning signs of a possible shooter, and then to take the next step to get that person some help. Sandy Hook Promise also took Remington, the gun manufacturer, to the Supreme Court, and won its argument for liabilities. But whether the families will ever be compensated is in doubt. Remington has declared bankruptcy. Still, Hockley and Barden are also fighting to stay connected to their dead sons, to their memories, despite the emotional pain that entails. Barden, for instance, still wants to see the crime scene photos of his son Daniel. I've been advised against it by from people from everywhere who say you don't you don't need you can't unsee that and you don't want to remember him that way, which all makes good sense. But I still hold on to this idea that I have to do that, and I have this kind of screwed up maybe screwed up, um, need to live with the pain and to take as much of the pain as I can because I couldn't be there to save him and he had to deal with it all. So I just feel like I kind of owe it to him to, like I don't feel like I want to be cured or better or counseled or make this easier. I want it to be hard and I want to, I want all the pain there is. After the Sandy Hook interviews are over, the Cry Havoc actors walk onto the winter streets of Newtown. The scene is something like out of a storybook. The snow, the New England homes, the white church steeple, and the firehouse where Hockley and Barden learned their sons were never coming back. Students are playing outdoors at the new Sandy Hook Elementary. Out on the streets of Newtown, the young actors are mostly quiet, taking it all in breathing the cold air. Then, a big yellow school bus with the word Sandy Hook Elementary drives by. The Cry Havoc actors stop and wave. Inside the bus, the kids wave back, happily. And the actors? They're just teenagers again. They're teenagers from Texas who've never played in snow and have never been in a snowball fight. 
Next time on Gunplay. We're not included in their message. When they talk about you have the right to Second Amendment and you have the right to protect yourselves and you got to save the government from taking your guns, I, I honestly think that they mean don't take the white people's guns, basically. Gunplay was created by Hadi Mawagdi and Jerome Weeks. A.C. Valdez edited the series. Michaela Rodriguez produced it. Ann Bothwell is KERA's Vice President of Arts. Delta Spirit let us use their song, Hold My End Up, as our theme. And Joe Cazera provided additional music. Special thanks to the members of Cry Havoc Theatre Company. Gunplay is a production of KERA and Guns in America. Guns in America is supported by a grant from the Candida Fund. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. 1-800-273-8255 or go online to suicidepreventionlifeline.org.